listening to the Valley Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Morrison. The time has come for America to hear the truth. We are going to stand with them, and not only are we going to fight for their rights, but we're going to stand up for our rights here in our state, in our homes, and in our community. States of America is not going to be decided in the courts. It's not going to be decided in Congress. It's not going to be decided on talk radio, and it sure is not going to be decided on Fox News. Solidarity Jacob Morgan Morrison here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller. It is Saturday, June 12th, 2021, and we're broadcasting live online and on the radio on WVNN in the Huntsville, Decatur, Athens listening area from Athens, Alabama. The recording of this program will play tomorrow, Sunday, June 13th, 2021 on the great WGOL in Russellville, Alabama, and sometime next week on WHIV in New Orleans, Louisiana. We are talking to members of the NYU Grad Workers Union about their organizing, their recent strike, and their new contract, Take and uh, taking your calls on today's show. Uh, so don't forget, folks, the North Alabama DSA has a necessities drive this Saturday and every Saturday from 3 to 5 p.m. at the IBEW Local 558 Union Hall on Clinton Avenue, right across from Yellowhammer and Campus 805. So bring by your non-perishable food items, your PPE clothes, blankets, all that kind of stuff, and your donations will be forwarded to the Mana House. You can follow at DSA North Alabama on Twitter for more information. If you want to see what we're up to throughout the week and get our snide quips about the news of the day, then you should follow us on social media. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Valley Labor Report. Uh, we're on Twitter at Labor Reporters. I'm on Twitter at Jacob M underscore AL. If you missed part of the show and want to go back and watch it later, you can search YouTube for the Valley Labor Report and subscribe to our channel. You can go back and watch the full show there, and we also clip segments and release them throughout the week. We we upload the program on more than 11 different podcasting apps. So, to see if we are on your listening platform of choice, you can go to thevalleylaborreport.transistor.fm slash subscribe. We've got a website where you can buy our fantastic union-made hats and union-made stickers. You can go to thevalleylaborreport.org and get those. And finally, if you appreciate our work and want to help us stay on the air, then consider throwing us a couple dollars a month on patreon.com slash thevalleylaborreport.org report. Uh, today, we are joined by members of the Graduate Student Organizing Committee of the UAW Local 2110 in New York, representing graduate workers at New York University. Um, why don't y'all introduce yourselves? Hi, um, I'm Arundhati Velamur. I am a third-year PhD student in the Department of Teaching and Learning at NYU, um, and I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for having us. I'm going to pass it to Sarah. 
Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Sarah Squaw. I'm a PhD candidate in history at NYU and a member of GSOC UAW. And likewise, uh, we're really excited to be here and to talk about, um, you know, grad student unionizing and unionizing nationally across the country and how we can all build solidarity. Uh, Lee? Hi, everyone. My name is Leandra Barrett. I go by Lee. Um, and I am a PhD candidate at NYU as well. I'm doing my PhD in American studies and um, I'm thrilled to talk about um, worker solidarity across the country and our successful strike this past May. So thank y'all so much for having us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank y'all again for coming on. And so, you know, thanks for mentioning what you're studying. Could you tell us some about what you do as graduate workers like what what are you know what do y'all do for wages you know in addition to your studies so i think there, there are so many different things that there are so many different jobs that graduate workers do at nyu and at so many universities uh, i am an ad, i was an adjunct instructor until last semester um, and so there's a lot of teaching that many of us do either as adjuncts or, or as teaching assistants. Um, there, we have a lot of hourly workers who do different kinds of jobs, including research and also administrative jobs. We have people who, uh, you know, I know someone who runs the teacher residency program in my department. So there is like really quite a wide range of jobs that graduate students do while they are also studying. Right. Yeah. I'm sorry, Sarah, were you going to, or Lee, were you going to add something to that? I'm just saying, I think Arjun Dathi did a really great job summarizing it, but um, we uh, do our own research and conference proposals and we write journal articles and none of that, according to the university, counts as work. Um, But we know that that is work and that we bring value to the university and to our students when we do so. Um, And then, yeah, we are teachers, so we lead classes, we grade papers, we, you know, assign readings, um, we have you know people who run programs in our our union so i ran um the history of women and gender seminar for a while um and we just have all sorts of people working the university would not work without us it would also not work without um, undergraduate labor and also you know contingent labor because like every other industry the university is just hell-bent on um, undercutting you know worker uh permanency and um, Mm. benefits. Yeah, that's something that I was actually uh, I was actually talking to my mother about this this morning about how there are um, you know my little sister is in college right now and she was being taught by a graduate employee um, and like Rebecca my little sister said that she could tell how much like how much stress she was under and how you know, little time she had to actually lesson plan and things like that. And, you know, that is a direct result of the attack on workers in universities, the elimination of tenured positions, of tenure track positions, replacing one tenure track professor with two or three adjuncts or graduate employees instead of having a real good uh, job with job security and, and things like that, and, and replacing them with people that they think it'll be 
easier to exploit, and in, in a lot of times it, it is, and it, it's bad. Obviously, you know, this is something that the teachers unions over the past ten years or so, when when they're organizing, have been has been ramping up, has said that their working conditions are their students' learning conditions, and that goes the same for college as well. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry. I, absolutely. One of the things that stood out to me, um, both when our when GSOC authorized the strike in late April, um, and then when we all when our in mid April, excuse me, and when we went on strike, um, our undergraduate students were with us a hundred percent of the way. And in conversation with them, many of them said that for all intents and purposes, in their eyes, the university stopped working. Mm-hmm. A lot of them have been remote over the past year. And the people they have relied on are graduate workers. For the people who, you know, I have a colleague who set up the computer system in their faculty advisor's home as part of their teaching assistant job. Okay. That was on top of lesson planning, leading recitation and working with students who were under an incredible amount of stress over the past semester. And so when someone like New York University, Columbia University, or Harvard um, dismisses graduate workers, um, acts patronizing towards them, and creates conditions that make it unsafe, difficult, or otherwise obstructs their work, what they're doing is lessening the experience of undergraduate students and people um, throughout the university, whether it's administrative workers, it actually, it hurts all of our working conditions when graduate workers don't have the best working conditions. Right, right. And and so before and before we go into the, the contract negotiations and, and what y'all were able to win, uh, Lee, we were talking yesterday uh, via email, and, and you mentioned that, that your union has been around since 98, but uh, after you ratified your first contract in 2001, uh, it fell through due to an NLRB ruling. So in, in the two or three minutes before our first break, can you talk to us about that and like the effect that the NLRB has had since... 2000 on you know on graduate workers ability to organize yeah I'd be happy to talk about that and and Sarah um, if you have anything to chip into feel free to just let me know the NLRB um, and NYU and graduate and GSOC have been among the oldest. Um, it's been among the oldest um, worker employee relations at private universities nationwide. And when GSOC first voted to create a union in 1998 and put together the first contract in 2001, that was under the Clinton appointed NLRB. Excuse me, you might hear some background noise. Um, I live in Manhattan and there's a helicopter. There's, um, thank you. When the Bush appointed NLRB came into power, one of the first decisions that they made was to make sure that students at private universities could not unionize. That didn't actually stop students from organizing and agitating in the years between 2002 and 2015, but it did severely hamper countries across, excuse me, universities across the country, including Brown University, NYU, and others who in that time period sought to create a union and knew that at the end of the day, we were workers, we were receiving hourly wages, um, but that it wasn't until 
uh, an Obama-appointed NLRB reversed that decision from 2001 that we were able to collectively bargain once again. And so we won our second, quote-unquote, first contract under that new NLRB decision in 2015 that followed um, an, an incredibly long and incredibly strong strike. Um, and that was what we built upon when our contract expired in 2020 and what we built upon for this fight um, here. So we've been at the mercy of what the NLRB decides, but GSOC is really lucky that we're now entering this fight with other universities. And so students at Harvard University, Brown University, um, Illinois State, I believe, is unionizing, University of Chicago. And so now we're not alone as the only private university. We're the first private university of graduate workers to organize. Um, but now there's four or five who have their first contract or are negotiating their first contract. That um, is- so I'm excited to see how we can help them in that process. Absolutely. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Morrison. All workers deserve fair wages, affordable health care, and a retirement plan that enables them to retire with dignity. All workers deserve to have a say about the terms and conditions of their employment, not just the bosses. With the machinist unions over 600,000 members having our back, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama has been serving workers' interests for over 20 years. Our members have the best health insurance in the area with zero deductible plans. We set the bar for pay in the area with over $40 an hour rates, consistently averaging the highest non-college degree jobs in North Alabama with some of the best retirement plans in the industry. We can do the same for you. Together, we remain united, raising our voices to ensure justice on the job and service in the community. The Machinist Union is a true Southern Union founded in Atlanta in 1888. We have been serving members' needs for 132 years. The longevity of our union proves our dedication and loyalty to the working class. The Machinist Union isn't just for machinists. We represent workers in government, health care, auto workers, aerospace, workers, transportation workers, the defense industry, and woodworking. Our members even build the iconic Harley-Davidson motorcycles. If you're ready to get serious about better benefits and wages, if you want to have a voice in your workplace with over 600,000 members to back you up, call or email us today at 256-286-3704 or organize at iamaw44.org. Here in Huntsville, federal employees are an invaluable part of the nation's defense, offering unmatched expertise in engineering and technology and as stewards of taxpayer dollars. What we ask for in return is to be treated with fairness, dignity, and respect. The American Federation of Government Employees, AFGE, Local 1858, is a union of working people looking out for each other, making sure that we're treated right. To inquire about joining or to learn more, call 256-876-4880. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host Adam Keller. We are joined by Arundhati, Lee, and Sarah from the Graduate Student Organizing Committee of the UAW Local 2110, representing grad workers at New York University, talking about grad worker organizing. Uh, you know, they, they mentioned about the NLRB decision in 2001 that prohibited graduate workers from 
uh, collective bargaining officially. Uh, it did, you know obviously you can't actually you can't stop organizing. You can't stop people from coming together and fighting for better wages and working conditions at all. But you can deny them legal. Uh, you can deny them like uh, sanctioned routes to collective bargaining, and that's what the NLRB did in 2001. That decision was overturned in 2015, and now they they uh, got their second first contract. They said in 2015, and they just renegotiated their first. And the, the one of the things that I'm interested in, and that seems to me very difficult in graduate worker organizing, as in other transient workforce organizing is the transient nature of the workforce. How do you keep the membership engaged and present and, and, uh, you know, when the membership turns over every year, every two years, you know, you don't have, you don't have the same people like, like at other UAW locals, you know, um, for example, ones in, uh, uh, the one in Spring Hill, Tennessee, um, where they, you know, they're a manufacturing plant. When we went up there to walk the picket line with them back in 2018, uh, you know, we talked to people that had been there for 20, 30, 40 years. Y'all don't have that. It's impossible for you to have that. So how do you keep, you know, how do you keep it going? I can share a little bit of insight. And then, of course, Lee and Sarah, if you want to jump in. Um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this. I was on the bargaining committee for this last contract. And I was thinking about, you know, some of the kind of tremendous wins that we had. Um, and it's true. It's like it, it, it is a really transient kind of group of, of, of unit members. And one of the things that I've realized is that this history that Lee just talked about, right, like that's our legacy. And the people who organized back in 1998 and then in 2001 and then in 2000 and then like they went on strike in 2006 5 and 6 uh, and then in 2015 as well you know we really are still very much connected to the people who fought those fights and to the organizers. So today, you know, when I think about what has positioned us really strongly to have won this incredible contract, it was really this, these incredible organizers who went before us, who were really kind of intrepid and brave and, and, you know, really went out and said, we will, we will do, uh, you know, we will do what it takes to, to get us what we deserve, to get workers what they deserve. And, you know, just have Having that history is so, so, so meaningful. And I think it's one of the things that made uh, our fight in the past year really, it really empowered us in so many ways because we had people who, who were able to give us a lot of, like, who were able to, like, explicitly consult with us on what we should be doing. But also, I think just knowing, I think history is such a powerful thing to know what has been accomplished and what hasn't been accomplished. And also, like, an understanding of how NYU as an institution operates was something that we had learned and how, how that had shifted over time. So I, I think it's, it's really really important to kind of uh, build intergenerational solidarity uh, within these unions and to make sure that even when I and like when the three of us leave NYU, uh, you know, we we leave behind something for future organizers to build from and build with and that we stay connected to them. I think that's a huge part of it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and how do you, I think if I could, if I could add something sure, sure. really quickly and I hope that, um, I think one thing that I valued about NYU, I actually chose, um, NYU as a graduate school for my PhD because graduate workers were unionized. I knew I would be protected as a graduate worker here than I, than, um, than I would have been as a worker elsewhere. Um, one thing that GSOC has taken from a liability to an asset has used the transientness of our workforce as a way of ensuring there's consistently a kind of radicalness and agitation coming to the bargaining table. So for example, between the fall and spring semesters of this past year, fall 2020 and spring 2021, the entire bargaining committee turned over. And what that meant is that the people who were fighting could say like, like they had that fresh energy, had that fresh perspective. Hmm. Um, and I think one of the reasons we were able to make such radical demands really to starting at a starting wage of $46 an hour tops off campus, making NYU a sanctuary campus, um, healthcare for everybody. That was possible because we had kind of fresh faces at the bargaining table and also in the rank and file. And it took a lot of work, certainly, to get everybody excited and to ensure everyone knew their rights as a union worker and what the union could offer. But the fresh faces in that way were more of an asset than they were a liability because everybody was really excited for what they could win. It sounds like that even even though the the transient nature it, you know that that's a real thing that that y'all have to deal with it sounds it sounds like even though you know y'all aren't going to be members of this union 10 years from now y'all are still going to you know y'all are going to be available for or, or y'all will have while you're here pass down your knowledge and, and and you know built up people to replace you but also even down the line people will be able to come to you and y'all been able to have that resource as well so even though there's like a transient nature there's still a there's still a wealth of knowledge from the people that organized back in 98 that you can that you can um pull from even though they're not officially members of the union anymore in a big way yes absolutely um like to this day we we've been in we've been talking to people who have organized with us and with nyu in the past and so it's yeah that's absolutely right and some of them even came to the picket line, right? I think that was really fun on the picket line. Uh, you know, there was someone who I knew, I think I'm, I've been at NYU the longest of us. I'm, you know, seven years is really like the longest you can be in our union because uh, after seven years, you move actually into the adjunct union. So part of it also is that we have, um, you know, these different we're, we're connected to other unions, right? We're not, it's not just 2110 isolated and alone, right? We have, um, you know, the adjunct employees union who's at NYU. We have the uh, UCATS, which is the library and clerical workers who like honestly have been holding it down for who knows how many years, right? Um, and so to have people who were on the bargaining committee in 2015 come to our strike or to have people who were involved in this, the fight in the early 2000s or the late 90s be, you know, come down to the picket line and say, you know, I'm so proud that, like, this is still the legacy and to know that, like, even when I leave NYU, like, I will be there, um, you know, when the next contract fight comes around. And I think that, like, you know, that's that's part of what's really valuable. And it's also really advantageous that, you know, 
New York is a, a union town, as we mm-hmm. say, right? So uh, we have such a strong uh, network to build on uh, and such like a wealth of knowledge, both from like our own lineage and from other unions and union fights in the city. And we're passing it forward. Like um, a bunch of journalists are likely to go on strike and we've been, you know, picketing with them. Yes, and I uh, we we sent an invitation to the New Yorker Union to talk about uh, to, they're they're going to be releasing a strike either a strike issue or a labor peace issue on their own and that is man I like this is such a such a good time to be a union union person I think uh, I <laughs> I'm really excited to see see what they do and uh, looking forward to hearing more from y'all on the other side of this break folks make sure that you stay tuned we are talking to Aaron Hadi Sarah and Lee from the New York University graduate student organizing committee UAW local 2110 um, and on the other side of this break we're going to be talking to them about what the university was trying to get them ex- to accept why they didn't accept it and the strike and then winning it so folks we'll be right back make sure you don't turn the dial stay tuned labor creates all wealth all wealth should go to labor good morning this is the valley labor report my name is jacob morrison here with my co-host adam keller we are joined by arun hadi lee and sarah from the graduate student organizing committee of the uaw local 2110 uh we're talking about graduate student organizing and uh um what, what they've been going through this morning yeah, and this is Adam. I just wanted to uh, thank y'all for a point you made on the other side of the break. It is so critical that activists and organizers in the labor movement pass their knowledge down. Uh, I, I feel like you should approach the work always looking for your replacement, basically. Uh, and y'all don't have a choice. Just by nature of your work site and the nature of your union, you sort of have to do that to be successful. But I, th- I think it's something that uh, all of us in the movement can take away uh, because it's very easy to try to be Superman, Superwoman, try to do it all yourself, uh, or to get comfortable in positions. So uh, I really love that. That's a great takeaway, even before getting into the nuts and bolts of your strike actions, which were very successful. Um, you know, thank you for that lesson. So let's talk about that then. Uh, your y'all just came off of a strike. Uh, y'all just won a contract. What was it that made? y'all go on strike because you know even um and and i don't know maybe y'all just have a more militant uh uh uh, membership and y'all are like we're gonna go on strike every contract but most people don't want to do that right most people most for most folks a strike is going to be the their last resort um because it does mean going without a paycheck for for some amount of time and i don't know if your union gives strike benefits but strike benefits are not are are definitely not going to be as much as your paycheck and so you know it's it's difficult to actually go on strike and to to go on a successful strike so what what was it that New York University was trying to do that y'all felt was um, that y'all felt was such that you had to you had to go on strike to to be able to get a better contract? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I will say that our union is militant, um, or at least we have, you know, a contingent of uh, very militant people. I think, as Lee said, you know, a lot of us came here because we knew we were unionized. A lot of us are just, you know, avowed leftists. Um, but there are also a lot of people in our, our union who are not. We have, you know, I mean... I mean, I think that's a good way to be. I think I, I think it would be good if every union just went on at like a minimum. You're going to have a week strike for every contract negotiation just to show the employer that we can do this. You know, that, that should be like as routine as a strike authorization vote, I think. And show them where the real work is right. actually getting done. I mean, absolutely. And and we did plan our contract. Like, we were very aware as we were going through our contract fight that like, we were ready to strike, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we were surprised, I think, or maybe not. We, we negotiated with NYU for 10 months before we called the strike authorization mm-hmm. vote. We negotiated with them through COVID. I think we were supposed to start formal negotiations in April. Obviously, that got pushed back. We were negotiating mm-hmm. during the summer anyway about things that were coming up during COVID. We were fighting for um, basically transition wages, right? Because I think, as Lee said, like a lot of getting the professors from real life classes to Zoom, of course, fell on the the graduate students who are like comfortable um, using the technology. And, uh, you know, NYU stonewalled us for 10 months. Uh, We put we came I mean, we came to them with a very long list of demands. Uh, We put out our dream contract from the beginning and we didn't compromise from the beginning. And I think, you know, I think that was invaluable in getting people to the strike is that we didn't come with a contract that was like, Yes, sir. May I have some more? We came with a contract that said, this is the university we want to see, right? This is the workplace we want to see. And we just talked to our members uh, for for months. We had one-on-ones. We had department meetings. We were just constantly, constantly. um, We had open bargaining, which was something that we fought for really, really hard, uh, which was also really important because grad members could come to the Zoom meeting and they could just see the way that the administration contacted descended to us right they would be like well let me explain what negotiation is right just this attitude that all of us who they had accepted into their school because we were supposedly smart and brilliant and all these things didn't know what it meant to negotiate right yeah i mean that's talk to us a bit about the open bargaining because that is something that um is not it it's not as common as folks like us and y'all would like i think um most uh, you know there there are more and more and less democratic versions of bargaining and and i think the somewhere in the middle which is what most people would be uh most people would be familiar with is that you elect a bargaining committee and the bargaining committee goes and, and they bargain and occasionally you get bargaining updates um like through social media channels or through internal uh union newsletters and 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 things like that and and that's even that's even perhaps more open but but what does your bargaining process actually look like and why is it superior in your mind to to a less open form of negotiations I think it has a lot to do with collective action, right? And I think, you know, there's also this question of uh, why did we decide to go on strike? How did we mobilize to go on strike? Uh, it's all actually related to open bargaining. And the way that open bar- like bargaining looked for us was that we would go into a Zoom room because of the times we live in. Um, and then NYU's bargaining committee would be there. We would be there. But we also had uh, all our observers 
So it was open to all members who could just come and listen. And so they were witness to the proceedings. So they were witness to kind of like the condescension that Sarah was talking about. One time, the labor lawyer for NYU uh, said literally these words. I mean, there are so many quotables, but one, one time she said, the law comes from the legislature. And this is, you know, part of their process of like stalling, right? Because mm-hmm. they are not making any moves. They're outright saying that our reasonable, our demands are unreasonable, which they are not because we've, you know, we've done a lot of research into thinking about what it means to make a living wage as a graduate worker who can only work 20 hours a week at the university. Um, But, you know, when you have your membership witness this, right, they don't have to take our word for what is going on in the room. So that already is like as an agitational tool, it's so powerful. And I think open bargaining was crucial to us kind of getting this incredible contract that we have now. Um, And I think the second thing that I would like to say about open bargaining is that, you know, the bargaining committee, it's not like, you know, kind of like what you were saying, David, it's not one person, it's not one group of people, it's not the bargaining committee that's doing this work. The bargaining committee tends to be the most visible group of people often in contract negotiations, but they're not the ones doing all of the work. And I think the bargaining committee definitely felt so, so, so deeply supported by organizers by membership because once you know so we would have we would we would be in negotiations and then we would break for caucus and then in caucus everyone that was at the bargaining session would join us in caucus and then we would debrief it over there and then before we made any moves there was democratic discussion in that space to think about what we're going to say or not going to say or how we're going to go ahead with with certain things and i think you know so in two ways one agitationally it was really useful and secondly it was so so so, so essential to making sure that whatever decisions were being made at the bargaining table were being made with the democratic awareness and consent of an input, right, and participation of uh, our membership, which I think is also just so, it, it, I, I can't imagine, you know, doing this without that. Right, right. Yeah, Lee? I was going to add that um, the the ability to what Arundhati is speaking to in terms of personally being witness. So I was not a member of the bargaining committee. I'm rank and file. But um, at one point in the process, I actually gave testimony back in October of last year of the personal challenges I face as a chronically ill worker. Um, and so I um, shared with the shared with both bargaining committees that I reached my annual out-of-pocket limit um, in our healthcare in about three months because Mm -hmm. of the sky-high prices of the medicine that I take that basically keeps me alive. Um, And so that in that same bargaining session or perhaps one bargaining session prior, the university spokesperson, um, so you can imagine how emotional it was for me to go forward and speak for five or seven minutes about, you know, the most challenging thing that I've faced in terms of healthcare. When yeah. one session prior, university spokesman John Beckman fell asleep at the bargaining table. Literally, I can't make this up. He fell asleep while a different person was giving testimony about a hate crime that was a, a, a 
uh, hate crime that they had experienced um, based on their immigration status and sexual orientation. And so I have two takeaways from that. One, that pissed me off. That meant that I still remembered that, you know, months later when it meant that I had to forego wages. I knew that NYU could do so much more based on the math that we had done and also based on seeing them at the bargaining table. The second takeaway from that open um, deliberation and the open decision making, what it meant is that when it came down to um, sustaining energy throughout the strike, um, that's what we were able to call upon and say, look, we've been at the table with you all the way through this. Um, and and also, you know, NYU, it's, it's chump change to them. Mm-hmm. Um Right. Right. Yeah. And, I, I, you know, that's the fact that it's chump change to them. You know, I mean, people are paying so much more for tuition. This is another point of the conversation that, that my mother and I talked about this morning is that, that you know, folks our age pay, uh, you know, multiples of what she paid uh, during when, when she went to college. But she had tenure track professors for like all of, you know, all of her classes. And, and she had people that had job security and good wages and stuff. And, and we don't have that anymore. We have people in Alabama and, and uh, you know, we may actually, if it's if y'all are free for more than an hour, we, we may keep you a bit longer because a lot of this has been just learning what y'all have been going through. But I want to hear some of what you want, uh, some of what you would say to people down here, who, graduate workers who don't have unions, but want, you know, like at UAH, they literally have what I would call poverty contracts. They're contracts that are that 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 pay them approximately the poverty line. The poverty line in Alabama is 11,500 11, per year something like that and I think their contracts are for like 11,800 here a year. A year. And in their contract it says they are not allowed to take another job. So it's literally legally locking you into poverty. This is what graduate workers go through here, and they don't have a union, and so many of this. So you know, I want to hear like how would how you would advise them, but I also want to you know learn more about your strike and stuff like that. So we're coming up on a break. We're going to be talking about more about the strike, how you were able to win it, and what you were able to win on the other side of this break. So make sure you stay tuned. We're talking to members of the Graduate Student Organizing Committee, uh, representing grad workers at New York University, UAW Local 2110. Don't turn the dial. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Morrison. The Valley Labor Report is also supported by listeners like you. If you value the work that we are doing, injecting a different perspective into talk radio, and you have the means, consider signing up for a monthly donation on patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash the Valley Labor Report to support our work and keep us on the air. If you're looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, if you need iron workers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Iron Workers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from 
roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Iron Workers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334. That's 256-383-3334. Or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net. And make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. Put a there, boy, and we'll show these fascists what a couple of hillbillies can do. Folks, welcome back to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host, Adam Keller. We are joined by members of the Graduate Student Organizing Committee of the UAW Local 2110, representing grad workers at New York University, Sarah Arundati and uh, Lee. So, uh, we were talking about their bargaining process, and, you know, uh, whichever one of y'all want to answer this, that'd be fine. I'm interested in... um, the strike, and you know, y'all said that y- y'all you y'all are a militant union, and and that's that's great, uh, love that. But you bargained with them for more than ten months, right? So you didn't just go, you didn't just go into this like we're determined to strike, we're going to strike. You know, I mean, you you actually, you, you know, there was there was some amount of there was a, a significant amount of good faith work and negotiation and cooperation and bargaining that y'all did with the university for a, an extended period of time before you called a strike um how uh uh what was the breaking point that made you decide to strike and and why was it so effective what would you what would you credit to your um to 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 your being able to win the strike I can speak briefly to um, NYU's um, proposals, and I think one of the point blank NYU stonewalled and budged over the course of those 10 months and made little to no progress on the proposals that they put forward in response to our first proposal in August of 2020. One example that comes to mind for me that is um, that personally really ground my gears is that um, NYU offered us a $1 rate, a $1 raise on wages um, throughout the entire process. So what that meant, they also offered us tiered raises. So they wanted, um, they proposed that PhD students were going to have a $2 raise and MA students were going to have a $1 raise. We as a union knew that that was meant to divide and conquer and create more division between members of our bargaining unit. Um, We knew from institutional memory and history that NYU had actually made administrative decisions back in 2014, 2015 that shifted the composition of our bargaining unit um, by separating teaching assistant work from a doctoral student stipend. That's one thing that distinguishes NYU from other private universities that are unionized. 
raised. Um, but when we saw them try and do this tiered wages thing, we knew that it was an attempt to divide and conquer. And so we refused the t- tiered wages. And then they said, okay, well then a $1 raise for everybody. We came in knowing that we wanted at least $46 an hour. And over the course of those 10 months, we came down and worked to find something more reasonable, even though we had calculated that wage based on the restrictions that are based on the most vulnerable workers in our bargaining unit. International workers specifically can only work 20 hours a week and their only employer can be NYU. They work for anyone else. They'll um, violate the terms of their visa. Hmm. Um, And so the wages in particular was something that we knew that we needed to fight for. Healthcare was something that we were going to fight for. And we were also going to fight for immigrant workers rights. It'd be really it'd be really easy to dismiss um, immigrant and international student rights um, in a bargaining contract. It's all, it's very easy to go with, you know, what people believe most people have to deal with. But the reality is at NYU that almost 40% of our bargaining unit are international students. And so when we were fighting for people on the margins, so to speak, if you would say, oh, well, queer students, um, if it's queer students' health care, if it's international students' rights and ice on campus that may seem like a fringe issue to nyu or to you know other folks but for us we knew that at the end of the day was always going to be a core issue and so healthcare, wages and international students rights that's where we're like you know what we're willing to forego wages and go on strike for this and if I can just like add just very quickly, I think, you know, the international wages, international student right issues, especially uh, until we went on strike, until we were, I think, into the third week of our strike or maybe the end of our second week for 11 months, NYU said that was not a subject of negotiation. So they just refused to acknowledge those issues. And it wasn't until we went on strike that they even came back to us with anything at all. So it was really to kind of like protect these very vulnerable groups. And the only way to win protections and rights for the vulnerable groups was to go on strike. And so that's kind of what pushed us to the edge. Right. And so how, how were you able to win? Uh, you know, how long were you out on strike and how were you, how were you able to win? One of the things, one of the questions that we got asked was, uh, did students refuse to cross the picket line? What did that look like? How did that play into uh, your ability to win the strike? Yeah, I mean, so it was really, I mean, impressive, but also exhausting. We pulled together the picket line in three days, right? Like it was really, okay, we have this strike vote. We had, everyone had been working so hard for so long. It was like, oh, we got to put together a picket, right? Uh, We had both, uh, uh, obviously, like your regular in-person picket. And then what I thought was really incredible, we had a virtual picket, right? Because so many Mm -hmm. of our people have been virtual for Mm -hmm. this entire, since last March. Um, And so we worked our asses off to get people to the the virtual picket line and to the real picket line um and then as like negotiations were ongoing while we were on on the picket while we were on strike the like we would have like 50 or 90 people who had been in the virtual picket line like zoom in to the contract negotiations we would have uh, if we couldn't have, we weren't allowed to have like a live stream, right, of the uh, bargaining negotiations, but we would mm. be getting updates from the bargaining team while we were on the picket line and we would be passing those forward. We were on strike for three weeks 
Um, we had the support of, I mean, there were scabs, like we're not going to lie. There were scabs and we had to fight mm-hmm. the scabs. Uh, there were scabs among graduate students. There were scabs among professors. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, we, oh, one of my favorite stories was an undergraduate student actually streamed into her virtual class from the picket line. So she was like marching, you know, one, we are the union two a little bit louder, like as she's zooming into her class with one of her scabbing professors, uh, uh-huh. we had professors show up to the picket line. It was great. That's awesome. So, so, so that's that's really cool. So, some of your, um, so the, the a lot of the students did like not go to class with scabbing professors and 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 disrupted class sometimes where when uh, when they did zoom into class. That's fantastic. Yeah, I just have to shout out uh, YDSA, and we kind of got this. I'm going to show this T-shirt that we got made. Uh, I saw that. Video. Uh, so it's GSOC YDSA Solidarity because uh, you know YDSA members at NYU really showed up and kind of were there every single day at the picket line. And we wouldn't be, we wouldn't have had such a successful strike if it weren't for their kind of commitment and just solidarity and really, really, really kind of going out of their way to to support us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, undergraduates really, really were a huge part of this fight. Right, right. And and what, you know, what you mentioned is that, you know, the students uh, could really tell that the university just shut down when y'all were on strike in a lot of ways. Yeah, for sure. I think I remember uh, this This went viral, but one, uh, you know, one professor tried to take over a graduate instructor's class and the students wrote to her saying, no, like you will not do that to our professor, like to our instructor. We really love her. She's amazing. And so, yeah, I think they were quite, um, they were quite vocal and actually it took a lot of courage, in my opinion, for them yeah. to stand up to the chair of a department. Absolutely. I, I definitely think so. And and so that is I mean, that's that's fantastic, uh, you know, um, that, that you were able to, to get so much support from the undergraduate workers, because that's another way that universities could divide people. They could say, you know, look, oh, they're uh, the they're trying to take away your education instead of they're trying to fight for you to have a better education, which is the message that y'all would be sending and the, and the accurate message. But, you know, the boss is, is going to try to divide within the bargaining unit and then, you know, within the people that y'all are y'all are trying to. Uh, that y'all are teaching and so what were you able to win in the contract so much we were able to win so much and i'm still kind of reeling from it um so one thing was that you know the wages issue was really bad and they were giving us first they gave us these tiered wages and then they you know and then when we said in fact it's really interesting because they said 21 dollars for for uh master students and 22 dollars for phd hourly workers and then when we said that's not okay for you to do this they said okay we'll just give everyone 21 dollars. so that was actually also an instance in my opinion of regressive bargaining from them um, but then eventually when we went on strike and everything uh, we ended up at uh, with a 30 percent raise from our previous contract so from 2019 2020 to 2020 2021 we went from $20 an hour to $26 an hour so that's a 30% raise um, and the contract ends us ends up at $30 an hour by the end of it so it's that's that was a really huge win another really tremendous win was for healthcare we have a huge healthcare fund now um, and you know so now we're in a position where where a lot of people you know healthcare costs as we know are just impossible 
available in this country and so people can go in uh, you know graduate workers can go in and apply for reimbursement for from the healthcare fund for out of pocket costs uh, we also the international immigrant win is another huge one because for the longest time that was not a subject of negotiation and then all of a sudden i think you know the strike was working we were becoming a nuisance the operate this university was coming to a halt because 40% as lee said of all our workers are estimated to be international and immigrant workers so we got this huge we got protections from ice not just for graduate workers but for all members of the nyu community that's the language in our contract in the site letter um and also we got a fund for international and immigrant workers to file taxes because their tax situation tends to be so complicated and the university refuses to help with that so there's another fund that students can draw into uh we have some great protections as some great benefits for parents uh for new parents um we also have really good uh, leave policies now um and i will add that you know in terms of i think adam you raised this question of like uh you know solidarity and like intergenerational stuff i think this also feeds into in this kind of sideways way these future contracts that are being negotiated right now both at columbia and harvard in a really big way because you know at columbia right. uh, Arundhati, we're going to have to pick that up on the other side right. of the break make sure you don't turn the dial we will be right back sorry You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Moore. Hey, you listen to conservative talk radio all week. Why don't you try something different for a change? The Majority Report with Sam Cedar is a five-time award-winning daily left-wing political talk show. We go live every weekday at 11 a.m. Central Time on our YouTube channel. You can find it by searching for The Majority Report. We talk about the news. We take libertarian callers. We have debates. We interview guests on topics ranging from the post-Civil War Reconstruction era, child poverty, capitalism, the intellectual dark web, and more. And that's all just within the last month. If you want to hear what smart, progressive political talk that is occasionally amusing sounds like, then you need to tune in. And you're always welcome to call in if you want to hear the correct opinion on any given topic. I will give it to you. Tune in to the Majority Report at 11 a.m. Central Time on YouTube or later wherever you get your podcasts. WVNN. The Valley Labor Report is also supported by listeners like you. If you value the work that we are doing, injecting a different perspective into talk radio, and you have the means, consider signing up for a monthly donation on patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash the Valley Labor Report to support our work and keep us on the air. You have questions. We have answers. News Talk 770 AM, 92.5 FM, WVNN. Depend on it. WVNN. All power 
to the workers. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host Adam Keller. We are joined by members of the Graduate Student Organizing Committee, UIW Local 2110, Aaron Dottie, Sarah, and Lee. Uh, we were, uh, uh, Aaron Dottie was talking about the things that y'all were able to win after your three-week strike at New York University. Sorry I had to cut you off there. <laughs> No, that's okay. Thank you. I've never done this before, so this is quite exciting for me. Uh, but uh, I, I guess I'll just wrap up quickly. But I wanted to say that you know one of the things that was really powerful to us in the bar- at the bargaining table, especially you know when it came to towards the end of our strike was the fact that uh, at Columbia, you know, they had had a big no vote just then. So what happened was, you know, their contract negotiations had reached a point where the contract that was presented to the rank and file was rejected by the rank and file. And for, for instance, like, you know, that was a great rejection because that was not a very good contract, if I'm being honest. Uh, I think it went, it like, that contract took wages from $17 to $20 by the end of the contract. And we were already at $20 an hour at NYU. So it was just absurd that these two universities in New York were treating, you know, were, there was so much disparity between the two. Uh, but the fact that that contract was voted down really empowered us because I think it put some additional fear in, in NYU's uh, heart, not that I think they have a heart. But, uh, you know, I think it instilled some fear there and then they were kind of terrified of, of that happening in our case as well because we were on strike. The, the university operations had come to a halt and it looked like you know uptown at the uptown campus think things were not going according to plan so you know the solidarity that really extends across generations and across schools and across spaces is 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 also so important it empowers other fights that's that's exactly right. That's a good note to hit on because that's something that we've talked about with this mine worker strike. One of the things that they've been saying uh, that that we've talked to members about is that you know like if we accept this terrible contract, uh, then that's not only going to hurt us and our community, it's going to hurt other mine workers across the state and across the country. Um, so, so it's, you know, uh, a rising tide really does lift all boats, but the rising tide is not, you know, the millionaires and billionaires. Uh, the rising tide is going to be the workers that are actually doing the work. If you rise, you know, if, if, if you bring them up, then everybody is going to be able to come up. So, you know, the uh, where I want to end it on is... What? How would you begin a conversation with a graduate worker from a non-unionized campus? Um, you, you know, down here in Alabama, I know that there are some listening right now that uh, and that, that are going to be listening to the recording in the future. That they work for like literally. I know people that work for minimum wage, seven dollars and twenty-five cents an hour here in Alabama. Graduate workers, they have a bachelor's degree and they're working for minimum wage while paying to go to school uh it's not like they get minimum wage on top of having a tuition scholarship there are people that get minimum wage on top of paying tuition i mean it's insane i don't know how and uh, they don't and they don't it's crazy but there are no unionized grad workers officially unionized. There is uh, some CWA minority union organizing at UA, but it's not. You know, it, 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 there's no big even even uh, 
you know, a large solidarity union presence at UA with the CWA. And, and so there are a lot of people that they want to do something, but they're scared because uh, they know that labor law in this country is toothless. They've never seen it done here. Um, and, uh, you know, like the workers in Bessemer, uh, for a lot of them, this is like, that's the best they can do. And so what if I lose it? You know, how how would you start a conversation with a worker like that? I mean, I think that's that's the key thing, right? Uh, I mean, we all watch Bessemer very closely. Um, I think we're watching the mine workers as well, right? I think it really starts with personal relationships is honestly the key, right? Um, I mean, very practically, I would say talk to the people in your department, right? Um, is there already like a graduate student history association or something like you use the the organizations that exist that are not necessarily supposed to be like union or political organization and you bring up you know you ask one another like what are your pressing issues it's always wages right like it's always it starts with wages this thing you said about poverty wages at uh you know the poverty wages like that's a that's a real thing like uh the university says oh your apprentices oh you're so lucky to be here you're so right. smart you know this is the path to your your great career we all know that there's actually like the entire academic job market even for the sciences has just collapsed into a flaming pile of crap um i think so i mean that's really a good place to start as well is talking with your peers about you know where where things are now and for me it's always really important to think about not what is the university that we have but what is the university that we want right a university that we want that is not just focused on how much tuition it can raise but a university that is focused on uh, like developing people's love of learning sorry maybe that's corny I'm a humanities person uh, but like uh, you know and one where there is where the people who are working there at every level feel supported and so I think it it always starts with these one-on-one -on -one conversations, right? And through these one-on-one -on -one conversations, you get to know other people, which is often like the biggest hurdle. You're just like, I feel alone and scared and I don't know how to do this, right? Mm. And you start with those personal connections, you build that up, then, uh, you know, you reach out, you see, oh, who else in my immediate area is doing this? Maybe, I think you were saying Auburn, you know, maybe they have a solidarity union. You start a group chat with them and then it spreads and you recognize that there's going to be unevenness across departments there's going to be unevenness you know in a state system throughout the different universities um but you don't let the fact that the man says no be your no right you recognize your own power in there and and you fight and it's a long fight but you know building those relationships i think is just always at what it is at the base yeah, and I would add, um, excuse me, just a second. Helicopters, man. Um, I think it would be really easy to dismiss both our demands and our wins as specific 
to New York City. But for myself, I grew up between Texas and Louisiana. And so I have a lot of empathy and love who are for those who are organizing in states that are predominantly conservative, in right to work states. And what I've learned over the past decade, moving between New England, the Northeast and, and rural Texas, is that bosses here are bosses there. They're bosses everywhere. There are differences in the cost of living. But at the same time, we're graduate students. I'm a humanity. I'm a historian at the end of the day, but I can do a little bit of math and I can figure out, you know, using the MIT living wage calculator, what it means for me to have a living wage. Yes, it would be a completely different thing for a graduate worker in Alabama to ask for a $30 an hour wage. The cost of living there is different. It's totally different living in Manhattan. But at the end of the day, I'm sure the percentage difference between the lowestly paid employees and the provosts, Mm -hmm. the deans, and the university presidents, that's still a huge percentage-wide difference. And so what's happening in New York can happen adjusted to the local conditions in Alabama. It just means thinking about what you as a graduate worker need and what you think you deserve to work with dignity and not what your boss or your um, employer dictates that is. I I just want to jump in and say, I think it's so important what y'all have discussed in terms of having a positive vision for Mm. your work, for your workplace, in this case, a university and, I think that's something it's one thing to fight against something to get, you know, to fight against uh, abusive practices of your boss or to fight against low wages. But to have those conversations and relationships you discuss to develop a vision of what it could be, you know, what would it look like if we were in charge for a day, you know, and, and could actually develop the type of workplace or university that we'd like to see. I think that, um, is sometimes overlooked because uh, it's so easy to get mad at all the stupid stuff our bosses and politicians do. Uh, but we can't overlook this idea of actually having positivity and, and dreaming a little bit that things could be better. And I think, like you said, you start with those one-on-one conversations and building relationships because otherwise, how do you know um, what that looks like without those conversations and actually talking to each other so i just i really think that that's a great thing and i think that probably helped you guys in your strike efforts that y'all had a positive vision and it wasn't just against uh you know the administration at nyu but it was for a better nyu yeah yeah that's and that's something that a lot of the teachers unions uh, lately have been um have been doing as well. I think I think it was Chicago, the Chicago Teachers Union, that released a report um, right. titled "The Schools Our Students Deserve," and right. it sounds like y'all did a very similar thing. And and I think that's the, like Adam said, that's so important. And that helps with the community connections and the student support that y'all had. I mean, it really, um, yeah. So I really applaud y'all for for setting some examples that I hope other folks can learn from, including folks down here in Alabama, because you're right, you can do it here. Some of the specific people may be different. Some of the specific numbers may be different, uh, but the struggles are very, very much the same. Absolutely. And um, I want to, like, we're at a really exciting 
stage right now, having won our contract, um, but also before the fall semester, which for most of us on the academic calendar means like a, a ramping up of what we have to do. Um, but I want to plug really quickly our website, which has the contact information for GSOC, um, because if, if there are graduate workers um, listening to this show or who in the future want to be in touch with us or to access some of the public materials that we have on our website that help explain how we came to the various demands that we did, that website is makingabetternyu.com. It's also available if you Google GSOC, G-S-O-C, space NYU. Um, excuse me, I gave the wrong website earlier. It's makingabetternyu.org, not .com, .org. Um, and that can be a resource for people who are in this fight in the educational sector elsewhere in the country. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for that. I appreciate it. Uh, and uh, I, thanks again for for coming on, y'all. That's uh, I, I think that's really important. And what y'all have been able to do, your um, you know, I, I I think it is something that that can be replicated here. And I think it's something that's that's so impressive being able to to build and sustain a union that's able to fight for uh, you know for for good demands and 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 to win so many of them for their. Uh, 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 for their members and for their communities and for their schools and for their students. Um, so I applaud your efforts. You know, I mean, that's that uh, no doubt y'all are spending, so, you know, I know that Adam and I both know from our union work, <laughs> there's so much, so much work that goes in uh, beyond for y'all, you know, beyond your studies and beyond your job. Uh, you probably spend almost as, as much time organizing for the union. And so, you know, we yeah, uh, uh, thank you for your service. Thank you so much for this opportunity and for having us. I mean, we're so excited to be able to share, to be able to build these connections. And, and like, we really mean it. Like, reach out to us mm -hmm. and we will talk to you because we love this stuff. Yeah, I can tell. I can I can tell from the from from y'all talking and, and you know that there's there's a real energy and a passion for uh, for each other and for your community and and I think that's something that 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 is so important to have as a unionist. You know, I mean, if you don't if you if you don't care about uh, your your brothers and sisters and your community, you know, I mean, uh, you're not going to be very effective as as a union. Yeah, and I, I would just add that I think that care, for me at least, my sense of it is it comes from like a feminist place. So I would also characterize that a lot, a lot of the work that this union has done has come from a feminist place. And I think community building and care are, are feminist practices. And that's why what Lee was saying, which is it's not local to New York, it can happen anywhere because communities can be built anywhere. That's that's right, and I, I appreciate you mentioning that. We didn't get into it really, but uh, so much of education industry, so to speak, is predominantly female, and I, I I think it's not a stretch to say that that plays a role in how uh, administration uh, responds to worker issues, um, the patronizing attitudes that 
y'all experienced at the bargaining table is, is mm-hmm. you know, something that we hear about regularly with any uh, predominantly female profession. Well, I mean, no doubt any predominantly female, there's going to be a difference there. But the mine workers, during their negotiations, they said that the lead negotiator for the company said that they get paid too much. And remember, these are the lowest paid union miners in the country. And she reckons they get paid too much. So, uh, Arundhati, Sarah, Lee, thank y'all so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Y'all have been great. And uh, look forward to maybe talking to y'all in the future. I I don't doubt that we're going to be hollering at you again soon. So, Thanks so much. Y'all have a good one. And folks, we'll be right back to wrap it up. This is the Valley Labor Report. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Morrison. The Valley Labor Report is also supported by listeners like you. If you value the work that we are doing, injecting a different perspective into talk radio, and you have the means, consider signing up for a monthly donation on patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash the Valley Labor Report to support our work and keep us on the air. The American Federation of Government Employees, AFGE, Local 1858, believes all workers are entitled to fairness, dignity, and respect. AFGE also knows that the best way to guarantee proper treatment is for workers to stand together, united, looking out for each other. In AFGE, we fight for workers every day to ensure a workplace that is safe and free from harassment. If you're a federal employee and want to be a part of this union to protect yourself and your fellow workers, call 256-876. Six four eight eight zero. Jacob Morrison here with my co-host Adam Keller. We just wrapped up a conversation with members of the Graduate Student Organizing Committee, UAW Local 2110, representing uh, grad workers at New York University in New York City. We were talking to Aaron Dottie, Lee, and Sarah, um, and I... I was so excited for this conversation. I think they did a really great job, really illustrating because the the, the grad workers that I've talked to in the state, one of their biggest one of their biggest concerns is that um, they haven't seen it done. They haven't seen it done at all, much less successfully. And so I was so excited to be able to showcase an example of. Like, this is something that's done right here in this country, in America, in 2021. There are graduate workers that are organizing, uh, that have unions, and that have won good contracts, that have refused bad contracts, that have gone on strike, that have shown their effectiveness, that have shown uh, their the, the fact that... Uh, like uh, uh, like I said during the show, that labor creates all wealth. That the ones who make the university run are the workers. It's not the administrators sitting in their ivory towers. It's the janitors, the graduate workers, the adjuncts, and the professors. They're the ones that are making the university run. And so, that is, as workers, our biggest asset in many ways, our only asset is our ability to sell our labor and 
thus our ability to withhold our labor. And so they were able to do that successfully just in the last 12 months and win a good contract that is going to get them up to $30 an hour, uh, above $30 an hour for many of them. Um, uh, as graduate workers. And of course, you know, $30 an hour doesn't go as far in New York City as it does in Alabama. But that is, uh, you know, I mean, that's a good wage. 30% that, raise is what I heard. A 30% raise. And and that's really impressive. And not just the, the wages, but the protections they were able to uh, guarantee for their international students. That's been another theme mm. of this show is kind of the connection between immigration and the labor movement uh, and how the two really are, are tied together intimately. Right. And I think their union was a, a, a great case study of that. Right. I mean, they had no choice but to... I, mean, I guess they, they did have a choice. They had a choice whether they could uh, actually prioritize those students' needs. Uh, but in their case, you know, 40% of their local are international students, so it was harder for them to ignore it. But I, you can, as you could tell from, from those sisters there, they had no intentions of ignoring it. Uh, it is easy sometimes in our unions to overlook those kind of issues or, or more marginalized folks in the union. Uh, but all of those issues are intertwined. Mm-hmm. And when you have some workers who are more easily exploited or who have less power, uh, that's something you have to tackle. And so, you know, last week we talked with South Dakota, AFL-CIO, and, and how um, a heavily refugee uh, hmm. workforce in some of their pork processing plants. You know, our refugees, our immigrants, uh, those folks are more vulnerable, and the bosses, employers, they, they utilize that. Right. Meanwhile, the politicians, backed by those bosses and employers, uh, get on talk radio and get on Fox News and, and mainstream media and try to sow division amongst us. But at the end of the day, like you said, if all we have is our labor to sell, because that's the vast majority of people in this country, we don't own capital. We mm-hmm. don't employ other people and make a living off profits. We don't you know, right. own a lot of property and make a living off extracting rents. Most of us have no choice but to sell our labor in exchange for a salary or wage. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, you know, mentioning the, the how easy it is to allow yourself to follow the logic of the boss and allow yourself to be divided and that's what they 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 mentioned how they offered phd students a two dollar an hour raise and ma students a one dollar an hour raise and that was it that was uh that that was an attempt to goad the phd students into voting yes even though they knew that ma students would vote no and um to, to get them to divide to, to try to divide the bargaining unit so that the yes votes overwhelm the no votes and they and, and they end up accepting a bad contract it, it happens all the time it ha- uh, David has told a story on the show about um, how they offered to uh, uh, keep um, retiree health care for people that are there but end it for people that uh, that left and and you know in an attempt to divide or, or uh, Get rid of it for people that come in in the future. That's another attempt to divide the workforce. The tier uh, the tiered wages they dealt with that at the UAW. I mean, there's just so many different ways, and and so it would have been an easy thing to say we're going to give up these protections for our international coworkers um, in in exchange for higher wages or maybe better benefits or maybe better health care or something like that. And I was talking to somebody the other day. Um, 
uh, and and he said that he didn't understand why a union would allow undocumented workers to be in their membership because uh, and he he was like I think that's one of the reasons that unions don't have support anymore and why why would you hire undocumented workers or whatever and it's like uh, and I told him I said unions aren't the ones that hire people that's the boss that's the boss's prerogative the boss creates the workforce the boss creates the bargaining unit so then it is on us to create a union with what the boss gives us if the boss didn't hire undocumented workers then then we wouldn't have undocumented workers in the union not that you know not not that undocumented workers don't deserve jobs or anything like that but that's not even our choice in the first place and so once undocumented workers are in the workforce then our choices are not to get rid of them or keep them. Our choices are, do we incorporate them into our organizing and become stronger? Or do we allow ourselves to be separated from our undocumented brothers and sisters and risk uh, them being scabs because we didn't let them in the union? Why would they go on strike with us if we don't let them in the union? We risk them undercutting our organizing. And so if we can build a community with them, we're going to be so much stronger. And he didn't understand that. He didn't. He still didn't, even at the end of explaining that, that, that you know, once the boss creates the bargaining unit, then it's our duty as unionists to, to bring everybody together, regardless of documentation, regardless of, uh, of, of politics, regardless of anything, gender, anything. It, 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 it's, we have to bring everybody together so that we can win higher wages and better working conditions. He didn't understand that. He was a boss. So that, you know, that is probably why. I mean, yeah. But, you know, I mean, this is, it's such a, this, I, I'm so happy with this interview, but because it, it showed that it, it, it can be done, even with a transient workforce. And so a lot of this can be, a lot of their advice can go for transient workforces that are not graduate workers. Their advice was have conversations, have one-on-one conversations with your coworkers, find out what their life is like, find out what they need to have a better life, go through institutions that are already there, graduate worker, uh, uh, graduate student history committees or, or, or whatever, or maybe your sororities could be a good place to organize or your fraternities could be a good place to organize. There are so many- uh, Anywhere people are gathered together exactly. is, is an opportunity. And and it doesn't have to, you, the first time, in fact, the first time that you meet with somebody, you don't, uh, this is something that they said in, in an organizer training that I was in one time, you don't drop the U-bomb the first time that you meet with somebody. You just, like, as a tactical matter, right, because you don't want to scare somebody, but also as a matter of, like, real humanity, because you're not just trying to form a union for yourself. You it, you should be concerned with yourself, but you should also be concerned with your brothers and sisters. And so in the process of forming the union, you actually do want to understand where they're coming from, and you actually do want to understand what they need to have a good fulfilling and comfortable life you're not and and so you don't have to drop the u-bomb on the first or second or even the third time that you meet with them you just want to understand them as workers and as human beings and i think we should acknowledge that that is in our economy in our society often a difficult thing it's certainly uh, an increasingly unusual thing but that is the power of the labor movement to bring people together uh, and to build relationships that are not built on profit and commodities and and seeing each other as uh you know a way to get ahead or or to 
you know, just view it as self-interest. That's right. That's the promise of labor, and that's that's our power is being able to uh, build those relationships and build communities, even in spite of of a system that wants us to do everything but that. Yeah. Yeah, Adam, that is exactly right. So, folks, make sure that you go out and you start having those conversations with your brothers and sisters on the job. Figure out where they're at and start t- having conversations of, with them about what it would take to get them, what what it would take for them to live a comfortable life. And then you can start educating them about what it would take to get there. That is the union difference. That is the advantage of having a union. Folks, this has been the Valley Labor Report, and we will see you next week.